0: As we look at this passage and look at what you have to say to us, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you speak to us clearly and straight into our hearts? Amen. Now, you'll have to forgive me for my slight lack of voice this morning. Um, Yesterday, as many of you will probably be aware, it was the first day of the football season and we were there, weren't we, Richard, and probably, I don't know if there's anyone else here who went down to Truesbury yesterday? No. You missed a great, oh yes, brilliant, great match, great match. Hundreds of thousands of people up and down the country went to their first football game of the season yesterday. Now, most of us went there in some sort of mixture of hope and expectation. Normally going to Shrewsbury, it's more hope than expectation. (laughs) Yesterday, there was more expectation than hope at the end of it, which is really good. Um, And we think that this is our season. This is the year we're going to win the promotion we're going to win the Premiership, we're going to win the FA Cup, whatever it is. This is our season. Normally ends up not being like that down the road, but anyway. Now, football's a great sport for both uniting and dividing the country. And many many's the time, any of you that are football fans have probably done this as well sat in a pub with your mates, deciding who's the, which is the top 11 players that will play for England. Who's the best striker? Who's the best midfielder? Who's the best goalkeeper? Or just who's the best player altogether. Now, for some of you, that will be, I don't know if there's anyone too young around here, but people like Wayne Rooney or Steven Gerrard at the moment, go back a few years when I was sort of watching football a lot, and it was, I don't know, Gary Lineker, Gazza, Glenn Hoddle. You go back to David Rauch's time, it was Nat Lofthouse, or, yeah, Nat Lofthouse, yeah, you remember him. It's your, it's your age, dear. <laughs> We'd had massive arguments about who was the greatest. Now, this really is what the disciples were doing, but they weren't busy arguing about who was the greatest chariot racing star. They were busy arguing about who was the greatest amongst them. Who was going to have pole position when it came to sitting next to Jesus in the kingdom of heaven? Which of them was the greatest? Now, to understand why they were probably arguing, we just go back a few verses to the beginning of the chapter when Jesus chose Peter, James and John to go at the mountain to witness the transfiguration there is possibly just a bit of a hint of jealousy amongst the other disciples here which led to this conversation on the road to Capernaum however when Jesus asked them to relay the conversation they keep quiet and I love the translation in, in the message and it says this their silence was deafening their silence was deafening They've realised that their conversation wasn't quite, quite right. That it wasn't the sort of thing they should really have been discussing. And I'm sure many of us have been there. We've been talking with friends, talking with people about a conversation. Someone else walks in and we sort of go a little bit quiet. Maybe the conversation might have been about them, I don't know. It might have been something we shouldn't have been discussing. It might just have been a private conversation, but we go quiet and actually there's a little bit of guilt there about the sort of things we may have been talking about, maybe in gospel or whatever, we realise that the conversation isn't quite right. And that's just where the disciples are at. So if this whole discussion is wrong, and God really doesn't measure greatness in the way the world measures greatness, then the question is, how does God measure greatness? Now this is when Jesus does it. Right there in that deafening silence, That's when Jesus hits them between the eyes. He drops in a simple truth that has the capacity to turn their and probably our world completely on its head. It's possibly one of the most compelling truths in the Bible. First of all, he summons his disciples, maybe just a little bit frustrated by their arguments, and he says this. Again, this is from the message. So you want first place then take the last place. Be the servant of all. Isn't this what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus' kingdom and Jesus being counter-cultural? Jesus has just managed, in one single sentence, to turn everything that goes on in the world completely upside down. This means having to rethink our culture, or at least realise that the way we think, and if we think that way, it's completely the opposite of the way the world thinks. Often all our world cares about is who's number one. Who's the best footballer? Who's the best sports star? Who's the best celebrity? But Jesus has a different opinion. Now George Pitcher, who's a Daily Telegraph columnist, uh, in an article on faith and, and politics middle of last year, I think it was, he wrote this. Faith leadership isn't an authoritarian, top-down game. Indeed, the servant ministry that is at the heart of the Christian narrative provides a model that is firmly bottom up. What is required of our leaders is neither religious denial nor grandstanding, but an engagement with our church, with honesty and humility. Admittedly, these are not qualities readily associated with politics, but they should be and could be for a new administration that has fired to a refreshed morality in public life. If Christ's model for servant ministry, for his church is servant ministry, then the question we should be asking ourselves is not should we serve, but how should we serve? Part of the answer can be found in Romans 12. First two verses say this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. So what's that mean? It means giving of our very best, not our second best. When God instructed the the people of Israel in the Old Testament about tithing, he talked about giving of the first fruits. That means whatever we're doing, whatever we're doing, we do it as if we're doing it for God. God may have blessed us with some amazing skills or talents, but it doesn't mean we should take them for granted. It doesn't mean we should just assume. We should do it, continue to do things for our best, to our best ability. Jesus then goes on to illustrate another aspect of, the ups, of this upside down countercultural kingdom. He gets a young child into the middle of the room, takes him in his arms, and says, Whoever welcomes one of these children, in my name, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but welcomes the one who sent me. Now, although Jesus used the example of a little child, I think the illustration goes much, much further than that. Children were generally ignored in in that society. They were definitely seen, but not heard in Jesus' time. They were not listened to or welcomed as part of the synagogue, They were simply adults in waiting. Once again, Jesus is there, turning accepted culture on its head. Now today in 21st century Britain, and certainly here in Christchurch, I'd hope that we would welcome our children in a much more positive way. There was a prophecy here a few years ago, basically saying, look what I will do through the children and youth. And I hope we'll continue to heed and uh, act on that prophecy. But Jesus isn't talking about children here. He's using them as an example of the downtrodden in society. The homeless, the asylum seekers, the refugees, the drug takers, those who are considered worthless by their fellow human beings. If we look at James, the first first chapter of James, again the first first few verses, and again I'm reading from the message. James writes, My dear friends, Don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious, Christ-originated faith. If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit, and a street person wearing rags comes in right after him, and you say to the man in the suit, come and sit here, this is the best seat in the house, and either ignore the street person or say, you better sit at the back, out the way. Haven't you segregated God's children and proved that you are judges? who can't be trusted. And he goes on. Listen, dear friends, isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently? He chose the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens, with full rights and privileges. This kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. And here you are, abusing these same citizens. So I ask, what would you do if a homeless person came in here, singing of beer and cigarettes Maybe just trying to find some shelter. Not wanting to take part in the service or listen to anything. Just looking for some warmth. Would you ignore them? Or would you welcome them in? Let them sit next to you. Find them some food. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. Last year, when we as a church looked at what we should be doing as our priorities for these coming years, welcome was one of the three key areas. And we spent a lot of time, effort and money in trying to make sure that things are right. We've invested money in the new kitchen that's being built at the moment. We've invested a lot of money and time in developing a new website. Time and effort in training a welcoming team. All of which are things, and are right and proper things to be doing. However, the real test of whether we are a welcoming church will not be shown when the nicely dressed person and the well-spoken person comes in and is shown to their seats. It is when the homeless, down and out, comes in. The test is then. Jesus says in Matthew 25, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless and you gave me a room. I was shivering and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you stopped to visit. I was in prison and you came to me. And when we ask, when did we ever see you like that? He replies, I tell you the truth, whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. So if you want to be great in this upside down kingdom, that is Jesus' kingdom, I want to leave you with with two challenges. Firstly, Jesus called us to be servants of all, and he's the ultimate example of servanthood and humility. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, says, Think of yourselves the way Jesus Christ thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status, no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges, instead he lived a selfless, obedient life, and then died a selfless, obedient death, and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. So how do we go about being a servant? We've got to be prepared to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, prepared to get involved and serve others. That may be here in church, but there's regularly many needs on the leaflet. People speak out to the front about needs of the church but just as valid as our service outside the church. With us getting involved in specifically Christian projects like Illuminate Trust or whatever, or just simple things with shopping for your neighbours, helping people down the street. Simple things like that. My second challenge is about how would we welcome an outcast in this church if they walked in today? Would we offer them the seat next to ours? Would we take them home for lunch after the service? Or would we quietly ignore them and hope someone else on the other side of the church looked after them? We may not studiously discriminate against them, but by choosing to ignore them, we are in effect ignoring Jesus. The question is, though, should, should we be taking it one step further than that? Maybe Jesus is asking us to go out and find the nobodies of our time and be welcoming to them where they are, not waiting for people to come in here. This won't make us popular. It won't make us a mass movement. It won't make us a newspaper success story. But it will make us into true welcomers. It will make us one with God and one with Christ, who has come to turn the world upside down. As I was researching this talk, I came upon this quote, which I'd like to close with Christ has come to turn the world upside down, to humble the powerful and to lift up the lowly. Christ has come to turn the tables, to topple vain idols, and to stand with the poor. Christ has come to proclaim God's kingdom, to feed the hungry, to give sight to the blind, to strengthen the weary, to set the prisoners free. Christ has come to turn the world upside down, to overthrow the present order, with a revolution of love. Let's pray. Father, would you teach us how we can truly serve you in everything that we do?